Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 70, 70 of Criminal Broads, a true crime podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm your host, Tori Telfer, author of Lady Killers and Confident Women. And thank you all so much for listening to last week's Mary Vincent episode and joining me in cheering for Mary Vincent and also our utter loathing for Larry Singleton. Guys, I was thinking about it and I was thinking like, who are the criminal broad's top five most loathsome individuals? I really feel like we need to compile a list, a greatest, aka worst hits list. The ones that come to mind, but you know, I can only remember the past couple episodes or so. I just can't hold it all in my brain are Pam Hupp. Remember her? The one who killed her friend, Betsy, and then was like, the husband did it. I really don't think we like Grace Fortescue from the Massey Affair episode, The Mother from Hell. Larry Singleton, of course, makes these ladies look like angels. They should join the canon of saints compared to how horrible he is. But surely we've covered some other terrible people on this podcast, right? I mean, I know we've covered a whole range of people. Some we love, some we're sympathetic to, some we feel conflicted about. But who are the ones who we just are like, no, cancel them now? Email me, criminalbroads at gmail.com, and tell me who you want to nominate for this list, this list of infamy. All right, today we actually kind of don't have an antagonist in this episode, except for the state of Pennsylvania. Now, listeners from Pennsylvania, before you scream at me, I am one of you. I used to live in Philadelphia, okay? So don't yell at me. I've been there. (laughs) But the state of Pennsylvania has some issues when it comes to the criminal justice system that are illuminated by this episode. We're going to talk about the story of Sharon Wiggins nicknamed Peachy, who has what I call in the episode a dubious superlative, which you'll hear later. But the basic gist of her story is that she served a very long, controversial sentence. We're going to hear from her friend, Ellen Melchionato, in this episode, who can tell us about how Sharon was as a person. And this is going to be one of those stories that's about the woman at the heart of it and is also about the capital S system which is always, I'll be honest, depressing to learn about, but important. There's an observation that you'll hear later in this episode that's basically about this specific type of incarcerated woman in Pennsylvania is just kept almost literally invisible. The prisons are remote. You don't see them. There aren't very many resources. This quote actually got cut from the episode, but I did have this quote about how these women often suffer from very low self-esteem, and this just combines to make them invisible. And this is not just happening in Pennsylvania. I can guarantee you this is happening across the U.S., maybe across the world. And so I would like to think that If Criminal Broads can occasionally shine its humble flashlight with one battery dying on some of these stories, it's just a reminder. You know, I don't think it's healthy for us as a country to truly forget about the people who are incarcerated, no matter what they've done. This isn't saying that everyone who's in prison needs to be released or anything like that, but it's creepy to forget about people, I think. It's creepy to just completely not know what is happening 
to our fellow humans, our fellow citizens who are behind bars. So anyway, this story is going to get into all that. But let's go to Pennsylvania, all right? My old stomping grounds. Well, we're actually going to be hanging out in Pittsburgh and elsewhere. But accompany me there. We're going back to the 60s. Let's go. Sharon Wiggins once said that a life sentence was like being in a dark room with a blindfold on. And that's because we don't have a lot of time. If I was going to um, equate it with something, I guess it would be like the feeling of it is sort of like being in a real dark room with a blindfold on. So the room's dark and you have a blindfold on too. Right. Does any light get through that? Blindfold in that dark room? Uh, not visual light, but I think what happens is that after a time, your imagination or your mind creates light for you. That's Sharon talking to Howard Zare, the famous criminologist, in 1993. They were at Pennsylvania's State Correctional Institution in Muncie, which had been Sharon's home for 24 years. A decade after that interview, Sharon was still locked up. She did another interview. A journalist for Philly Daily News asked her what she'd do if she ever got out. I want to know what it feels like to wake up by myself, she said. Here you live on public view. There's always a big piece of glass on your door. I want to wake up by myself. I want to know how it feels to walk down the street I want to know how it feels to sit in the car and hear the rain just beat down. I want to know how it feels to sit with my sister and have a cup of coffee. It was a humble list of goals, but Sharon just wanted to get out, to see what life was like for most of the people in her country. She'd been behind bars for the moon landing, for the Beatles breakup, for Watergate, for the case of the Central Park Five, for the invention of the Apple computer for Y2K, for Britney Spears, for AOL Instant Messenger, for Facebook. The outside world, for her, might as well have been another country. And so her wants were simple. Her own bedroom, a cup of coffee with her sister. She just wanted to get out of that dark room, to take off that blindfold. Sharon Wiggins was born into a tough world. In the 50s and 60s, when she was growing up, a black kid from inner-city Pittsburgh, she didn't see a lot of reason to hope. She didn't see a lot of reason to stay home. Her mom was mentally ill and abusive, and the pressure of being a mother to her three younger siblings often fell on Sharon's shoulders. Sometimes she couldn't take this pressure, and she'd run away. After all, she was still a kid herself. She was smart, though. She was put in an elementary school for gifted children. And she was close to her grandparents, who more or less raised her. Her grandma grew up in a huge family in Birmingham, Alabama. Here's Sharon describing a traumatic incident from her grandma's past, an incident that always haunted Sharon. 
once uh, they were on a porch and it was late at night and the Ku Klux Klan came and uh, got her brother who was a teenager who was around 16 or 17 at the time and she said they uh, came and got him and nobody ever said anything. She said that what she remembered most is that nobody questioned these people. You know, they came in, they had horses and, you know, the whole clan guard. And they just got down off their horse, went over to him and took him. And they never heard anything from him again. And I asked her, I said, well, nobody asked about him? And she said, no. She said, nobody ever said a word. As a teenager, it made me angry and it made me, I think because I didn't understand the fear that was generated by the Klan, and I had never been exposed to anything that blatant in my lifetime, that I, I was angry with my family. To me, it was like, they were cowards. I mean, nobody tried to fight or, you know, not realizing that probably it would have meant her whole family dying, and that it was about, for them at that particular time, survival, and that they had no choice because they had no one that they could tell. Even today, I, I, I think about it a lot. I get torn between being angry with the people who committed the act and the individuals who never said anything about it, the, the whole community that at some point knew that, you know, he was taken like that. At age 12, Sharon started using drugs, sometimes selling them. At 14, her grandma died. From then on, she was more or less homeless for the next three and a half years. Later, she would describe her teenage years as being in survival mode. By the time she was 17, she was hanging out with two handsome young men. They'd grown up in the same area as she had. Their names were Foster Tarver and Samuel Barlow, ages 17 and 18. The three started hanging out in 1968. Rumor had it that Samuel wanted to date Sharon, but she told him that wasn't going to happen. Anyway, by that winter, the teens were itching for excitement, and Foster had friends in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania's capital city. So that's where they went, hoping to leave their troubles behind in Pittsburgh for a few days. Though Sharon could never really leave her troubles behind. Later, she'd tell a friend that the reason she did what she was about to do was to get money for her mom and her little siblings to help them survive. In Harrisburg, the teenagers partied like only teenagers can. They slurped cough syrup and went to a high school football game. And then they started talking wildly about doing something bigger, more serious, more dangerous than slurping cough syrup and going to a high school football game. There was a bank in Harrisburg, the Dauphine Deposit Trust Company. Banks meant money, and lots of it. Piles of it. Maybe even bars of gold, the kind of money that could absolutely transform your life. The teenagers cased out the bank, watching it closely. Before long, they were gathering gym bags for the money and silver pistols to make sure everyone in that bank did what they said. The date of the robbery was December 2nd. Sharon and Foster walked into the bank at 9.40 a.m. They looked sharp, Foster in a knit vest, Sharon in a belted coat. Both wore their hair short, with Sharon's only a little longer than Foster's. Samuel stood in the doorway, acting as the lookout. As luck would have it, bad luck for the teenagers, an off-duty cop was headed to the bank that day, 
He was going deer hunting later, but first, the bank. He noticed the nervous-looking young man as soon as he walked in the door, and suddenly that young man was poking a gun into his back, ordering him to step inside. The off-duty cop didn't obey. Instead, he knocked the gun out of Samuel's hand and sprinted away, back to his car, where he had his deer-hunting rifle. Inside the bank, the robbery was in full swing. Sharon had her pistol out, and she was guarding the customers, who were shaking and lined up along one wall. Foster had the gym bags, and he was scooping cash into them as fast as he could. Then, someone new entered the bank. George Morlock, age 64, retired and hard of hearing. Sharon told him to line up with the other customers. George didn't listen. There are different accounts of what exactly happened next. Some believe that George just didn't hear Sharon, that he stepped towards her hoping she'd repeat what she said. Others think that George was trying to be a hero, and that he stepped towards Sharon and said, Do you know what you're doing? Sharon has said that George lunged for her and her gun, or at least she felt like he was lunging for her and her gun. In those tense, panicked seconds, it's easy to imagine that whatever George was doing, Sharon interpreted it as an attack. She fired the silver pistol twice. Foster came bounding over and opened fire, too. The teenagers sprinted away with their pistols and their gym bags and over $70,000 in cash as George Morlock bled out. He did die at the hospital before long. As the three teenagers peeled away in their getaway car, with Samuel behind the wheel, the off-duty cop was back with his hunting rifle. He saw them drive off, he flagged down a passing policeman, and the two of them gave chase, firing at the teens as they drove through the city. Samuel ducked to avoid a blast of gunfire and smashed into a parked car. Just like that, the chase was over. These were not hardened criminals, professional robbers, John Dillinger and his gang— These were kids who had no idea what they were doing. The teenagers were quickly arrested with their gym bags full of cash. Their lives would change because of that money, but not in the way they had hoped. Years later, Sharon looked back at that day with agonizing regret. Once, she said that if she could change one thing about that day, she would change this. Instead of going to Harrisburg with her friends, she would have gone to school. was the summer of 1996, and I was an intern at Eastern State Penitentiary while in graduate school. And at the time, there was an exhibit of portraits of women serving life without parole in Pennsylvania by Mary DeWitt, and the exhibit included their addresses to contact them. So shortly after my internship was over, I wrote Sharon Wiggins, That's Ellen Melchiondo. She's the co-founder of the Women Lifers Resume Project of Pennsylvania. She's an official visitor for the Pennsylvania Prison Society, and she's Sharon's good friend. When she first came across Sharon's story, she was struck by one thing, Sharon's age. Of all the 12 women that were there, she was the only one whose crime happened when she was 17. 
And I remember, wow, 17, boy, I'm lucky I'm alive. Sharon, Foster, and Samuel all pled guilty to murder in June of 1969. Sharon and Foster, the two who'd fired their guns, said that they'd been high on narcotics at the time and could hardly remember the robbery or anything else about the day. Since they had pled guilty, they skipped a jury trial altogether. Instead, a panel of three judges gathered to decide what their sentence would be. Now, the district attorney, who would have been prosecuting them in a jury trial, didn't ask for the death penalty. That was simply not on the table. So everyone was shocked when the three judges deliberated for less than an hour and came back with a chilling declaration. These three teenagers were going to have to die for what they'd done. The teens were put on death row. People were outraged at the sentence, though, and activists started working against it right away. Local pastors protested. The NAACP themselves went straight to the governor of Pennsylvania to plead for the lives of Sharon, Foster, and Samuel. It worked. In February of 1971, the teenagers' sentences were reduced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. These sentences weren't just life. They were life plus, if you will. Their sentences declared that if they were ever released, which they wouldn't be without the possibility of parole, they would need to serve an additional 12.5 to 23 years for aggravated robbery, violating the Uniform Firearms Act, and conspiring to commit an unlawful act. Foster and Sharon were 17 at the time of the murder. They were juveniles. No one denied that. But when it came to murder, Pennsylvania didn't care how old you were. The state had mandatory life sentencing for homicide offenders. Forget age, background, any other mitigating factors. In Pennsylvania, if you killed anyone, you were getting locked up for life, whether your frontal lobe was done developing or not. Activists had started to call this law death by incarceration, or the other death penalty. And so... Just like that, Sharon was locked up for life. Let's take a quick break to hear from this episode's sponsor, Dame. Relationships. Am I right, Criminal Broads listeners? Relationships. If you are someone in a relationship, thinking about a relationship, in a relationship with yourself, you should know about Dame Products, a woman-owned company making the next generation of toys for intimacy. Founded by a sex educator and an engineering whiz, Dame develops its products with the help of real humans, not robots, and couples like you. Their easy-to-use products are made with medical-grade silicone, smart design principles, and lots of love, earning glowing press from the New York Times, Wired, W Magazine, and many more. And the best part? Dame offers three-year warranties and hassle-free returns within 60 days. So if you'd like to try their products, go to dameproducts.com slash criminalbroads today for 15% off site-wide. Again, go to dameproducts.com slash criminalbroads today for 15% off site-wide.
Years after she was first locked up, Sharon would be held up as a model inmate, an example of someone who had totally rehabilitated themselves. But it took a while for her to get there. She struggled at first. Who wouldn't? And she actually escaped from prison twice. Once she turned herself in a few months later. The second time, she made it all the way to Indiana, but eventually someone recognized her and called the police. Escape is a strong word for what Sharon did, though, because back in the 70s and early 80s, her prison didn't have a secure perimeter. The men's prison did. There were a lot of ways in which the two prisons were different, and Sharon found that infuriating. But there was really nothing preventing the women at Muncie from leaving, and so sometimes they just did. Women were always walking away. They weren't escaping because there was nothing to escape from. They just walked away. And she did that twice. When she wasn't walking off the prison grounds, though, Sharon was discovering her voice. She took college classes, and she got involved in several major lawsuits concerning the civil rights of prisoners. In 1974, she testified in a suit brought against Pennsylvania's prisons by the Imprisoned Citizens Union and the American Civil Liberties Union. When Sharon took the stand, she testified about the brutal conditions at Muncie, like the fact that their rooms were often so cold they had to stay in bed all day. Seven years later, she and some of her fellow inmates sued the state for unconstitutional sex discrimination, saying that the educational and vocational programs at Muncie were far worse than the programs offered to male prisoners in the state. While men were offered the opportunity to learn a plethora of real-world skills— Women had to choose between typing, bookkeeping, and cosmetology. It's just things in 1983 most women don't care to do, Sharon told a journalist. On one hand, we're treated like children, not to be taken seriously. On the other hand, we're treated like criminals. Her lawsuit mentioned several other problems with Muncie, including the fact that mental health treatment there was frankly a joke. Female inmates were offered pills and nothing else, and the pill prescription process was laughable. All you have to do is write a request and say, I can't sleep, Sharon said. Nobody asks you why or what the problem is. She concluded her statements to the press with this. Nobody's asking anybody to feel sorry for us, but at least give us a chance. Since no one seemed all that eager to give Sharon a chance, she decided to go out and make one for herself. Despite the initially limited resources at Muncie, she ended up with a resume three pages long. That's two pages longer than my resume, for the record. She also got herself so many certificates that she once jokingly told a journalist she had about 10,000 of them, and this fact was repeated with a straight face by other journalists. She graduated with her associates from Penn State, and then she worked for Penn State to help get more female inmates to enroll in the program. She tutored inmates in math to help them get their GEDs. She ran a ton of groups, a group for parole violators that helped them get back on track, a group for alcoholics, for drug users, a group about relationships. On work release, she went into the community to pick strawberries from a strawberry farm and help with cleanup after a hurricane. What didn't she do? She got her license in cosmetology, in upholstery. She was a licensed mechanic. She studied construction, electronics, computer programming, catering, photography, and architecture. And for all of it, for each one of these diverse and useful real-world skills, she was behind bars. 
As she studied and worked, she was applying for commutation again and again and again. Each time, 12 times in total, her application was denied. Her friend Ellen cites two reasons for this. The first, her escape record. The escapes, or the walking aways, or whatever you want to call them, left a stain on Sharon's record that was almost worse than the murder itself. Ellen mentions John Fetterman in this clip, by the way. He's the current lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania. Women were always walking away. They weren't escaping because there was nothing to escape from. They just walked away. And, you know, she did that, and twice. And I think up until... You know, when John Fetterman got into office, those walkaways would sink your commutation application. But I think with a lot of advocacy, you know, and and bringing up equity and sexism and gender biases and all that, since all the men's prisons had secure perimeters, the idea that they would walk away would not enter in their decision process anymore. And it doesn't. So there's, you know, one woman is already out. She, ex- she had a walk away. One woman is getting out on commutation this December. She left and was gone for six years. So, yeah, so the whole walk away thing is not an issue anymore. I, I don't know what made it that Sharon Wiggins couldn't get commuted. I don't think it was because she had a death sentence. I think it was the, the escapes. They would look at the escapes very, very punitively. The second reason that Sharon's applications kept getting denied was that in the 70s and 80s and 90s, the commutation application had no room for shades of gray. At the time, the commutation application was really, really weak. And it was poorly designed. And, um, like, I, I have seen numerous old applications you know, before, um, like, Fetterman got into office. They, they've changed it. It's much easier now, and um, it's, it's, just a better, it's just a better process all around. And, you know, people didn't really know how deep to go into their trauma they, in the old application. They didn't have the opportunity to really explain what the first 16 years of their life was or 17 or whatever in her case. So when I read her old application, I was like, damn, you know, this is not the person I know. The word commutation is an interesting one. I looked up its history, expecting it to have something to do with the word mercy. But commutation doesn't have any link to the word mercy, etymologically speaking. In the year 1500, it meant a passage from one state to another. It comes from the verb commute, which means to transform or to make less severe, to put in place of another. When Sharon applied for commutation, she was not begging for mercy. She was asking for a passage from one state to another, from the state of being incarcerated to the state of parole. She was arguing in these applications that what she'd done was terrible but that she had served her time for it. It was exactly what she'd told that journalist years earlier. Nobody's asking anybody to feel sorry for us, but at least give us a chance.
1997, Sharon Wiggins caught the eye of the artist Mary DeWitt. Mary had been given a regional National Endowment for the Arts grant and was using it to create portraits and audio stories of women who were in prison for life. What Mary was finding was that in Pennsylvania, these women were almost completely invisible. Only the governor could give out a pardon, and for political reasons, Pennsylvania's governors had been giving out less and less pardons, and so these female inmates with life sentences were locked up in very remote locations to die of incarceration. Mary's project was called Life Sentences, and a journalist covering it noted that the women Mary painted would have been highly eligible for parole almost anywhere else in the country. So Mary painted Sharon and recorded her as she told her life story, talking about her teen years, how she made mistake after mistake until she found herself in that bank holding that silver pistol. Mary's exhibit was what inspired Ellen to write to Sharon, and Sharon wrote back. The two became pen pals until one day Sharon's letters stopped. Ellen later found out that Sharon had had a heart attack. And then... Almost 15 years later, in 2011, Sharon wrote to Ellen again. She said that she had been organizing her papers when she'd found those earlier letters and decided to resurrect their correspondence. Now that it was 2011 and not 1997, Ellen had something different in her life. She had the internet. I researched her and I could find articles about her and I just contacted anybody and everybody that crossed her path. And then she sent me a copy of her commutation application. And then there was more contacts in there. So I just immersed myself in the world of Sharon Wiggins' supporters over the decades. Before long, Ellen went to meet Sharon at Muncie. For some reason, she was expecting a very tall person because she'd read so much about her. In Ellen's mind, Sharon loomed larger than life. When she was coming down the steps, that's how the prisoners come down to the visiting room. They come down steps. So they're kind of like above people sitting in the visiting room, like they're entering a stage. So for me, it was like, oh, my God, here comes Miss America. You know, she's coming on stage down the steps. She was as tall as me. I'm five one, And I was like, oh, my God, Sharon Wiggins is so short. I had no idea. And I said that to her. I said, oh, my gosh, I thought you'd be like 5'10". You know, because, like, you're like Sharon Wiggins. And she's like, yeah, I know. They say that a lot about me. She had a lot of swagger. The two women bonded quickly. Ellen brought her 10-year-old son to prison, and he and Sharon ate microwaved popcorn and talked about math problems. Ellen was helping Sharon with her 13th commutation application, an application that would hopefully convey the real, evolved Sharon on paper, with her traumatic background and her transformation in prison and all the shades of gray that made up who she was. Ellen was also amused to find that Sharon was basically the queen of prison then. Everyone loved her. Everyone deferred to her. She was in charge. When I met her, she was in her early 60s, not at the height of her vigor and youth and everything, but, you know, she always had girlfriends. She was loved and she loved and she was just really confident, just confident. She wasn't ditzy or stupid or flighty. She spoke really like calmly and thoughtfully. So you knew when you were talking with her, 
you wanted to be your best. She deserved your best. It wasn't like talking to somebody who was in prison or who was involved in a bank robbery. She was just like a really caring, well-spoken person. She might have walked with like her hand in her pocket, you know, just checking things out. Because, you know, Muncie was her territory. Yes, Sharon had swagger. But her health was poor, exacerbated by years of smoking and the stress of being incarcerated and the poor nutrition of prison. She had a stent in her heart, a tube placed there to keep one of her heart's passageways open. She had gone through several serious depressions over the years, since life behind bars seemed hopeless. Since 12 out of 12 commutation applications had been denied. Since no matter how many certificates she got, she was still in that dark room with the blindfold on. But then, in 2012, something happened in the highest courts of the United States that caused her to hope. It was a Supreme Court case, two of them, actually, Miller versus Alabama and Jackson versus Hobbs. In these cases, the Supreme Court declared that mandatory life sentences for juveniles were unconstitutional, that the Eighth Amendment's prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment applied here. The majority opinion declared that adolescence is marked by transient rashness, proclivity for risk, and inability to assess consequences, and that this should come into play when teenagers commit crimes. In other words, locking kids up without seeing their youth as a mitigating factor was cruel and unusual. This was huge. This was huge! A decision from the United States Supreme Court saying that the sentence Sharon Wiggins had been given four decades earlier was simply not right, that she had been a child and should not have been sentenced like an adult. But it wasn't that simple. Pennsylvania wasn't about to let all its precious juvenile lifers go without a fight. States across the country started arguing about whether or not this decision applied retroactively. In other words, was it applicable to people who were already incarcerated? Or did it just apply to juvenile cases going forward? 14 states ruled that it did apply retroactively. Seven states said that it didn't. And one of those seven states was of course, Pennsylvania. Still, as the courts wrangled over this issue, Sharon allowed herself to hope in a way that she hadn't for decades. She kept busy helping her fellow juvenile lifers file the paperwork they needed to get their cases resentenced. But when she wasn't doing that, she was working on her own paperwork, and she was dreaming. We were talking about clothes and shoes and work and where you're going to live, all that. My dad offered her a job at his factory. I mean, so we were really hoping that she would come home. Journalists asked her what in the world she'd do with all her freedom. And she smiled as she told them her daydreams, waking up alone, coffee with her sister, rain on the windshield of a car, walking down a street. She said she wanted to work as an advocate for people with life sentences, people just like her. As far as her potential release went, she had two irons in the fire, so to speak. She was waiting on a hearing before the Pennsylvania Board of Pardons about her 13th commutation application. 
And she was applying for resentencing based on that Supreme Court ruling. She hoped. She hoped. But none of her dreams would come to pass. I visited her on Friday. And her close friend Nancy visited her, I think, the day she died. And when she left the visit, she went back to her cell. And that's when she collapsed from the heart attack and the aneurysm. I mean, everything just exploded in her body, I think. One of the women in prison had a friend on the outside call me. And it was exactly, I I remember it, it was 9 o'clock. The finale of The Walking Dead was going to be on. Sharon watched The Walking Dead, too. I'm in bed with my, like, 10-year-old son. We're getting really excited about this finale. And that's when I got the phone call. And I was like, sorry, Michael, I can't watch this show with you. And he was like, I'm not going to watch it either. I made some quick phone calls to verify this because I didn't know if this person was telling me the truth or not. And the next day, I went back to Muncie. and. That's when it was real that that it happened, that she had died. Sharon died on March 24th of 2013, at the age of 62, the year after that monumental Supreme Court decision. Three years later, the Supreme Court would declare decisively that, yes, the decision they made in Miller v. Alabama did apply retroactively. In other words, people like Sharon Wiggins, who were sentenced so long ago— had sentences that were unconstitutional, and they should be released. She died in 2013, before the retroactivity issue was solved. Had Pennsylvania not challenged it on retroactivity, it is more likely that she would have gotten out. So I blame, yeah, the system killed her. Ellen started a fundraiser online for Sharon's funeral. And Sharon's younger sister left a comment there. Peachy, she wrote, using Sharon's nickname. I was seven, and you were 17 when you were taken away from me. I waited patiently and so long for you to return home to me. This doesn't seem fair. I wanted to take long walks with you and have coffee and long conversations, go shopping and have barbecues in the backyard with you to kiss you and hug you tight and show you around this free world outside those prison walls. I love you, sister, and will miss you as always. I'll be with you when God says it's my turn. Now go, sister, to your new home and rest in peace. You are free at last. Today, Foster Tarver and Samuel Barlow are free, both released after serving decades of their life without parole sentences. Ellen has donated a collection of papers about Sharon to Penn State University, the place where Sharon got her associate's degree. Now, researchers and students at Penn State can study Sharon's life and legacy not as someone who walked free, but as someone who earned a dubious superlative— the longest-serving juvenile lifer in Pennsylvania and possibly in the world, age 17 to age 62, spent behind bars. 
Ellen continues to work with female inmates at Muncie. She advocates for them within the prison, but after seeing what happened to Sharon, her goal is really to get them out of prison as fast as possible. As an official visitor with the Prison Society, I still will look into how I can advocate for better treatment, medical care, or whatever issues are happening inside. But because Sharon Wiggins probably should have had better health care, maybe, and because the state did what they did, you know, I just got to get these ladies out of prison. At the beginning of 2020, there were still 1,465 people in America serving juvenile life without parole sentences. That number has declined significantly, though it's gone down 44% since the original Supreme Court decision. Many of those who have been released are no longer juveniles, of course. They are 40, 50, 60, emerging into a completely new world from the one they left behind as kids. A year before Sharon died, she told a journalist that it had taken her a long time to realize what exactly it meant that she had killed George Morlock. At first, she had been obsessed with questions like, what will my mom think? What will God think? Eventually, though, she realized something that horrified her. What she had done could never be undone. Prior to that, everything I had ever did I could apologize for, she said. But this was something that happened that was so final. She wrote in one of her commutation applications, The kind of sorrow I feel on a daily basis eats at me like a cancer. For George Morlock, it was a tragic way to die. You walk into a bank hoping to get a little cash to do what? Grab a sandwich? Buy a new pair of shoes? And there's a teenage girl in there, nervous and clutching at a pistol, and you can't hear very well. And so you walk towards her when she's screaming at you to step back, and she shakes so much that for a long time she can't tell if she really pulled the trigger or if the gun just somehow went off. It's a tragic way to die. But Sharon's death was tragic too. To have your heart give out when freedom is so close after 45 years of hardly daring to let yourself dream of freedom. Sharon told one journalist about her simple dreams, the coffee, the rain, the walk down the sidewalk. But there was one dream she didn't tell that journalist. It was a dream she got teased about in prison. She would be touring the country talking to legislators and policymakers. She could have been a teacher at a university, criminal justice, whatever. But, you know, what she really wanted was she wanted to live in a log cabin. If she had gotten out, she fantasized about living in a log cabin. She used to be teased because she actually had a subscription to Log Cabin magazine. Think of Sharon in her cell at Muncie getting a new issue of Log Cabin magazine. She opens it up. She sees warm wooden beams, crackling fireplaces. She dreams of it, of stumbling out of the dark room, taking off the blindfold, and finding herself in the woods with a rocking chair and a warm fire and the trees all around. Nothing to do but sit there and breathe the free air.
The end, everybody. That's the sad story of Sharon Wiggins, who made mistakes and was beloved by many, which is a very human way to be, I think. All right, as you may know if you've been listening to the episodes in order, (laughs) this is the second to last episode of Criminal Broads. I am going on a... I don't want to say I'm completely abandoning the show forever, but I also don't want to get your hopes up and call it a break. But I am taking time away from the podcast to focus on my writing. My writing not for audio, for print, for online, which is my true job, guys. (laughs) And also, you know, to focus some more time on my baby. So I'll say more of this in the next episode, but if you want to stay in touch and like see what I'm writing and hear what I'm up to, there are a couple ways. You can always check out my website, torytelfer.com. And I have a newsletter that I literally never send out, but I use it as a, if there's something to tell you, I'll tell you with it. I'll put the link in the show notes, but the link is tinyletter.com slash tori.gov. So that's T-O-R-I-D-O-T-G-O-V. Tori.gov was my old blog username. Don't try to find it. I've hidden it. (laughs) When I used to work in publishing, I would blog. Let's just, yeah, on my lunch breaks. Definitely always on my lunch breaks. Never during office hours. (laughs) Oh, it was so fun. I would blog insane things. Like I remember doing this post that was an exercise routine inspired by paranoia. (laughs) So it was like, is that man looking at you weird? Sprint. (laughs) Oh, relatable. <laughs> oh, to be 23 and at a nine to five again. Just kidding. It was a great job, but I'm glad to be done with it. Here I go talking about myself again. All right. Thank you again to Ellen for coming on the show um, and to Mary DeWitt for letting me use some of the audio from her project Life Sentences of Sharon talking about her grandmother's memory of the KKK. Always chilling to remember how, well, obviously, and unfortunately, the KKK is still around. I don't want to pretend it's a thing of the past. But it's always chilling to remember how um, not that far away we are from, you know, the Jim Crow era, from Sharon's grandma sitting on the front porch in Alabama and having the KKK just come up and take her brother away and no one says anything about it. Like, that didn't happen that long ago even though we might like to believe that it happened in a totally different time and place. So anyway, thank you to both those ladies for help making this episode happen. And thank you to all of you for listening, for commenting, instagram.com slash criminal broads for photos of Sharon Wiggins, and for just being my favorites. Love you all, and I'll be back here next week. Unless something changes, and things might, we are going to return to the most horrible conflict this world has ever known and from its horror and blood and fire we are going to pluck a story of incredible bravery see you here next week bye-bye maybe i'm right maybe i'm wrong loving you dear like i do if it's a crime then i'm guilty Guilty of loving you.